Chapter Seven of A Yellow Journalist by Miriam Michelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. The Legion of Honor, which Miss Massey earned. It was just like a play. The minute I stepped inside the door and saw old Lowenthal seated at the fire, his back to me and the paper held high before his eyes, and lawyer Brockington, his features masked, coming courteously forward to meet and intercept me, I knew the tip was straight. Rhoda, I said to me, something's up as sure as there's a theatrical trinity of which Tossick is the brains, Isidore Braun the hands, and Lowenthal the artistic temperament. Things have been doing in this same big beautiful room, and they have only reset the stage. It looks as though your knock had crystallized things, sent some of the actors flying and posed the two that are left, posed them in altogether too ostentatiously careless attitudes. It's too good to be true, this stage setting. Don't you believe it? I was shaking hands with Brockington all the while, of course, and listening to the stately sort of flattery which he considers suitable to the vanity of my kind of woman. Ah, Miss Massey, the Miss Massey, Lowenthal, the Benvenuto Cellini of journalists, who puts on finishing touches as a rule, and only accepts a bit of work as a whole when the subject particularly pleases her. Lowenthal laid aside his paper and rose. His face was ghastly. The hand with which he pushed back the thick white hair from his forehead, a characteristic gesture, shook so that his haggard eyes stared at it in impersonal astonishment for a moment before they met mine. But he did not speak. "'It is quite an honor,' Brockington went on smoothly. "'But, of course, it was only to give Lowenthal time. "'It is distinctly a privilege to have Miss Massey investigate one's affairs. "'Have you any affairs, Lowenthal?' he asked, with an excellent imitation of his own stately smile as haw-haw. And then, turning again to me while he placed a chair for me over by the bookcase, "'Just what is it, Miss Massey? Some ingenue's disingenuous doings or a star's matrimonial puzzles, eh?' he asked easily, thrusting his hands into his pockets and balancing lightly on his patent-leather toes as he carefully placed his sleek, well-cared-for big body between me and the theatrical man. "'Would you say?' I answered lightly, peering around his broad white vest to where Lowenthal sat, manifestly struggling for composure. Would you call Mr. Lowenthal a good lead on theatrical scandals? Not a bit of it. And all the time I've been a newspaper woman, I've never heard of a real vicious bit of gossip about the stage that came from Mr. Lowenthal. Isidore Braun, the middleman of the syndicate, is the man for that, Mr. Brockington. Let me tell you. If ever you contemplate becoming a journalist, or even Tossig, I found that out when he was in charge of the theaters here. Mr. Lowenthal is altogether too tender-hearted and conscientious to give away a fellow creature's frailties, aren't you, Mr. Lowenthal? I demanded squarely. And Brockington just had to get out of the way. I hope so, said Lowenthal. His hesitation was half sigh, half sob but having mastered his agitation sufficiently to speak, the sound of his own voice apparently gave him courage. "'You'd never do for a yellow journalist, Mr. Lowenthal,' 
I said archly. I hope not, he answered seriously. I laughed. Oh, yes, I laughed. Partly because it's always funny to me to hear people abuse the newspapers, particularly the people who are yellow themselves in their methods and don't dare admit it, and partly because a woman's laugh's a mighty good weapon when she's dealing with a man. It sounds so light, so giddy, so altogether silly, that he wouldn't for a moment suspect her of having either brains or purpose. I vowed to myself to prove to these two, the renowned artist manager and the biggest lawyer in town, that I had both, but not just now, not till it was too late for them to benefit by the knowledge. Of course, Brockington was on, partly. He didn't know how little I knew, but he had had cause to read my stuff in the news, and the one drawback about showing how smart you are in print is that you can't successfully go back on your reputation, even when it would be to your advantage to be taken for a fool. Yes, Brockington was on guard. He didn't know just what I wanted, but he knew me well enough to be sure that I had something to go on. He must have had some purpose in letting me get at his client. He knew probably that I'd reach Lowenthal one way or another, and he preferred the interview to take place when he himself was there to guard him. But evidently something unforeseen had just happened. What? I looked down a moment trying to frame the question for which Lowenthal was bracing himself. I looked down, but in a second my eyes had lifted. Had they seen, too? No, for Lowenthal's eyes were lowered as though he feared I might read too much in them, and Brockington's eyeglasses were just then giving him trouble. He stood, his lips pursed impatiently, his eyes squinting at the tiny screw which, with a long, well-shaped fingernail, he was trying to tighten. I breathed easier, and with the slightest movement, merely as though a fidgety girl were rearranging her draperies, I lifted the edge of the old Persian rug with the toe of my boot, pushed the pistol a few inches to the right, and let the rug fall again, covering it. A pistol! A pistol lying on the floor in Lowenthal's library! And Lowenthal, a man all poetry, all sensuous delight in beautiful things, a dreamer, not a man of action or business like his business partners, but an artist in whom the genius of his wonderful race manifested itself in stage productions that were embodied masterpieces. If you'd find a pistol in little Isidore Braun's house, you'd suspect that someone had at last come near murdering the cowardly, amiable little blackguard. If it were in Tossig's office instead, you'd fancy that the shrewd head of the syndicate had determined to do some shooting himself. But Lowenthal... I looked at that fine, long hand of his, lying nerveless just now over the side of his chair. It was a hand to wield a violin's bow, or with the touch of a connoisseur to handle royally rich stuffs, or to hold a woman in a strong, passionate embrace. But a pistol? No, not Lowenthal. I must beg your pardon, Mr. Lowenthal, I began cautiously, for the sort of quick I got no further. The door was flung open violently, and a young man came in. He started when he saw me and drew back. Brockington hurried forward to intercept him, and Lowenthal, who had been leaning forward in a listening attitude, fell back, every drop of blood drained from his face. "'Excuse me,' stammered the young fellow. "'I—I 
I am looking for something.' Leo Lothal it was, of course. I recognized him now. Lothal, who had dropped a syllable of his father's name when he went on the stage. Lowenthal's son by his first marriage with the little Jewish wife, who had accompanied his life till great success came, and then faded away as though before the anticipatory splendor of the present Mrs. Lowenthal. "'We are much occupied, Mr. Lothal,' Brockington broke in hastily. Evidently he dared not let the young man speak. "'Miss Massey, Miss Rhoda Massey of the News,' He spoke with such deliberate emphasis that even Lothal comprehended the warning in his voice. This young lady is. I bowed prettily as though it were an introduction. Mechanically Lothal bent his head, but it was only for a second that his attention was diverted to me. Instantly his eyes left mine to flit searching about the room. I had wondered that so delicately able a fighter as Brockington should use so obvious a weapon as the tone in which he had spoken. But as I looked at Lothal, I saw that only the directest words and tone could reach him. In a daze he seemed, as though the self-centering wall of strong emotion had shut him in from the world. Something had happened, had just happened, something that must have a vital bearing on my story, a development of it, surely. Perhaps, Mr. Lowenthal, I suggested sweetly, the rather painful subject I have to speak of might better be discussed with Mr. Lothal. Something fell with a slam. It was a book that Lothal had lifted from the table in the quick fluttering search his nervous hands had been making. You've told her? he cried. You can't have. No, interrupted Lowenthal steadily, facing me. I am ready to answer your questions, Miss Massey. I appreciate, though, the delicacy which would spare me direct knowledge of them. Brockington didn't, though. His face was set and sardonic when he came forward, after a quick pressure on Lothal's shoulder, and again stood between us. It is that very delicacy, he said with ironical courtesy, that makes me think that perhaps Miss Massey might excuse us all this evening. Oh, I'm aware he went on hastily, with a lifted hand to anticipate me, that the appointment was for tonight, and that the young lady's time is most valuable. But, he went on, turning to include Lowenthal and so give authority to the dismissal, as you may have noticed, Miss Massey, Mr. Lothal, whose professional engagements have been as trying as they were successful this past season, is nervously in a very bad condition and, on the whole, you agree with me, Lowenthal? I'm exceedingly sorry, Miss Massey. Some other time. I rose. There was nothing else to do. Lowenthal put out his hand with a gesture of acquiescence and leave-taking. Lothal, his back to me, was searching along the mantel for the thing he missed. I'm sorry, too, I said simply. But my, I was furious with disappointment. I don't like to print the story without corroboration, and yet it came so straight. In fact, I went on manufacturing testimony to brace my case. Our Sacramento correspondent wired that Mrs. Lowenthal and Jerome Kirby were on the limited eastbound this... It's a lie! In his frantic search, Lothal had reached the bookcase near which I stood, 
He turned now and faced me. "'I—I'm glad to hear it,' I stammered. "'I wasn't. I didn't know much but what I knew I was sure of, and all the town knew that the story might have been true any time since Kirby had followed the Lowenthal's west.' "'Of course it's false,' Brockington corroborated smoothly, with a laughing, patronizing recognition, as between us two wise ones, of the young man's heat. No need to turn upon the young lady, though, Leo, as though she had said the thing herself. Miss Massey's a clever girl, clever enough and kind enough to overlook a young fellow's impatient resentment of scandal that attacks the name of his beautiful and beloved young stepmother. Eh, Lothal? But Lothal's face was grim and dissenting. You can say from me, Miss Massey, Brockington went on, that the story's utterly false. As the legal adviser of my old friend Lowenthal, and in the family's name, I deny it in toto. Mrs. Lowenthal is at present. She's upstairs, blurted Lothal, nursing that. Exactly, Brockington went on, inaudibly snapping his fingers. It was a habit every city hall reporter in town knew. It came unconsciously to him whenever he feared that a client on the stand was on the verge of a damaging self-revelation. As Mr. Lothal says, she is upstairs in her own apartment. "'She's not ill?' I asked quickly. "'Mrs. Lowenthal is quite well.' "'Of course, then. It was the signal for retreat. "'There's nothing to it. I'll say good-night and thank you, Mr. Brockington.' My voice was sugar, and I did actually withdraw as I spoke to the door. Lowenthal, who had risen courteously, subsided like a broken man in his big chair, and his son resumed his search. Even Brockenden had drawn a breath of relief, I verily believe, when with my hand on the door I spoke again. "'But about Mr. Kirby,' I said, turning suddenly, I have positive information that Kirby's trunks went east on the overland, that he hired a closed coop and drove up here, where he was joined by a golden-haired lady of Mrs. Lowenthal's height and that unmistakable, striking, graceful figure we all admire, and then— I looked down pensively, and as I did so, my foot struck against something under the edge of the carpet there by the bookcase. The pistol— it was that that Lothal had been looking for in vain. In a second I knew it. I was sure of it. I looked up then, hazarding a guess. "'There's a rumor,' I said deprecatingly, "'that Kirby has committed suicide. It isn't true, is it?' I asked, turning directly to Lothal, who stood almost behind me. N "'No,' his voice wavered. "'He's not dead.' yet. Ah! I couldn't help it. That yet was too significant. With his agitation and the pistol lying concealed almost at our feet, and outside, as I live, at that minute outside the window, toward which his back was turned, old Dr. Norris coming up the stone stairs. I flew out then. Brockington himself couldn't have wished me away more sincerely than I did myself. I whisked out of that room in a jiffy and met the doctor just at the foot of the first short flight that leads to the entrance, whose praise is sung by every architect who's seen it. 
It took me a full minute to get just the tone I needed in my voice, the tone of the busy, careless reporter who is too experienced to expect news of his patient from one of these secretive, technical, and pompous balkers of journalists, but who merely in passing, oh, in the most hurried manner, as though one's own story were the most important thing under the sun, and one could hardly spare time to be conscious that anybody else might know something concerning it, comments on news familiar to both. "'He's no better, doctor,' I murmured, nodding casually as I passed. "'Do you think he'll live through it?' He shook his head gravely. "'Doubtful,' he said curtly, and rang the bell, turning his back upon me uncompromisingly. But he hadn't denied it. He hadn't denied it. I danced off the landing and down the wonderful staircase. It was too mad to be true that Kirby should be lying wounded in that house. But it was madder to keep separate all the tiny clues that pointed that way, our tracing of him and his disappearance beneath Lowenthal's lofty porte cochere, Lothal's preoccupied search, his declaration that Kirby was not dead, yet, Brockington's unconcealable desire to hide things, old Lowenthal's pitiable agitation, and old Dr. Norris's admission that someone, some man, was lying dangerously ill in that house. Who could it be if not Jerome Kirby? Jerome Kirby, bohemian, man about town, hero of many scandals that had crossed the continent before him, the lover of Evelyn Randall long before poor old Lowenthal fell bewitched by the power of her bad, beautiful face. Jerome, the idol of the tenderloin, a pattern for rakes and macaronis, literary dilettante, patron and friend of artists and chorus girls and all that Philistia condemns. And this the end, to die in the house of the man he had wronged. Oh, what a story! What a story! Positively, I ran down the street. A motorman, thinking I was after his car, stopped it at the corner and waited for me. I got on. I was too excited to do otherwise. I was mad with the chances the thing offered, and I couldn't stand still long enough to find out what I wanted to do. I found out all right before I had traveled two blocks. I had nothing to go upon. Nothing, absolutely nothing. I was sure, sure of the facts. But what managing editor in his senses would print such a story, on such hints as I could give, about one of the great ones of the theatrical trust? I stopped the car and got off, but I wrung my hands as I stood there in the night watching it twinkle its way downhill. If Kirby were to die in that house tonight, his death must be reported, and that would mean a scoop for the evening papers with only a warmed-over second-day story for us. Oh, I couldn't bear it! not with such a bully chance as I had to get it and get it first, and, oh, Lordy, exclusive. "'You'll give up the elopement story, Rhoda Massey,' I said sternly to myself. "'Let the office think you've fallen down, that you've been beaten, or that there's nothing to it. Anything that'll give you time and a chance at this biggest story San Francisco ever slept over and wake to find spread out before it.' I looked down over the twinkling town. I was due down yonder where the news building towered, but I couldn't go. Something pulled me up, back where the Lowenthal house stood, a palace in stone modeled after the little Trianon, looking out over the gate at the bay, and even to Tamalpais and Diablo. 
and beside it a littler Tryon, also built by Lowenthal, not for wife or mistress, but for the old mother he adored, the gentle, timid, sweet, little old-fashioned Jewish mother who, who... I had it! I had it! For a second it whirled me down toward the corner where the car was coming, and then it sent me right about up in the opposite direction. I don't know how I got to the servant's entrance of old Mrs. Lowenthal's house. My head was so full of plans, of scenes played halfway through and then shifted in a second to make way for others as short-lived, that I wasn't aware of myself save as an embodied determination, a determination to get into the house and to get the story no matter what might be the obstacles, no matter what I might have to do to overcome them. "'You can't see the old lady,' said the maid who opened the door. "'It's too late.' Grandma Lowenthal is never up as late as this. Except tonight, I added confidently. Nobody in either house is going to bed early tonight. She looked at me a moment, but she was not so sure by now. There was hesitation in her face. Oh, little loyal maid of the Lowenthals, you, and they too, were lost in that moment's hesitation. The Rhodomassies sing jubilates in their hearts when that shade of hesitation falls upon your faces. They know victory's in sight then. "'What's your business? What do you want with her?' she asked sharply. "'You don't suppose,' I retorted quite as sharply, "'that I tell Mrs. Lowenthal's business to any saucy maid that happens to answer the door. This isn't a time to gabble about people's affairs, I can tell you.' She flushed at this and twisted her lips resentfully. She was hurt. Her face was troubled, too. I could see by the light that swung above her head she had been crying. Grandma Lowenthal must knit her servant's souls to hers in a consistently old-fashioned way. Lucky for me that I hadn't tried to bribe this one. And, I went on significantly, as late at night as this I wouldn't be likely to come here if I wasn't sent. You'd better believe that, and you'd better not keep me here any longer than you can help, for it's you that are keeping the old lady up by it, remember? She fell back and motioned me in. She's not here, she began. What? I stopped in the hall dismayed. She's in the big house, but there's a passageway that connects them in the second story. Come on, I'll show you. Don't bother. I said lightly, hurrying up ahead of her. I know where it is. You needn't wait for me. I may stay all night, but if I don't, I'll go out the other way anyway. Oh, then you, you are the nurse, she called after me. I thought they finally decided none should come. I looked down over the banister pityingly upon her. Glory, hallelujah, I was in. It took you a long time to guess it, I chirped back at her. Of course I was the nurse. I was anything that could get in. Grandma Lowenthal in the big house at this time of night. Why, why, for any reason but one, I kept asking myself as I scurried noiselessly about looking for the passageway. Everybody in town knew that the old lady and her new daughter-in-law seldom met. A daughter-in-law of another religion, a different caste, an outlandish woman, lightly contemptuous of the man who was sacrosanct in that clean, simple temple, his mother's heart, who trailed her husband's honor in the dust, 
and as contemptuously counted upon consideration she received without repentance and accepted without gratitude rhoda i whispered to me it was very still the family must all be on the third story where the bedrooms were but my heart beat a terrified clamor within me there is only one reason for this there has got to be only one and and oh the luck of you there it is yes there it was at sight of it my knees knocked together i had known it i had been sure it was there and yet when i saw it i stood staring unbelievingly across the passageway and through the open door a man's body with a bloody bandage about the head lying supine upon the low broad couch and opposite the shaded lamplight falling upon her white hair and soft round face her fingers moving mechanically at her knitting while the tears fell resignedly over her withered old cheeks grandma lowenthal in attendance upon this wrecker of her son's home oh what a situation what a story rhoda rhoda what a story you can bet i had pulled myself together by the time i got to the door i had skimmed over the heavy velvet carpets she hadn't heard me i knew she hadn't heard me but it took nerve i tell you to walk in casually but softly with just an off-hand business-like nod to her not too respectful your trained nurse is acutely conscious of that dignity which doth hedge her own greatness as she lifted surprised mild old spectacled eyes my finger to my lips while leisurely I scanned the doctor's chart pinned up on the door. I'd seen nurses do it at the receiving hospital and elsewhere, and I've seen them since, those seismic charts of fever and suffering. But since that night I never look at one without feeling a hollow panic inside of me and without seeming to look through a weary, gentle old face upturned like a child's and, hooray, as guileless. I tell you I thought fast as I stood there. I thought of Lowenthal's face if he should happen to come in. I thought of the tone of Brockington's voice. I thought a dozen different fibs for as many occasions, but I couldn't be prepared for what really happened. I couldn't be ready for the quick benevolence that moved this old lady, that brought her toward me with a cup of hot tea in her little old hands, and a benevolent pitying care in her face. Drink it, she said under her breath. You're wet through how it rains raining so it was just buckets full of black water tumbling against the windows my clothes were drenched but i hadn't noticed it i did drink the tea i scalded my throat as i poured it down so young she said nodding gently as she watched me slip off my jacket i hoped they wouldn't send a nurse and you're just a girl, and out all alone on such a night, poor child. Again I put my finger to my lip and motioned toward the couch. It was all I could do, a blind battling for time. She shook her head sorrowfully. It will not wake him. Nothing will, you see, any more. He will be like that, the doctor says, till the end. It is no use my being here, but— she put out her hands and then clasped them together. "'Hadn't you better leave the case to me now?' I asked. Pity knows I wasn't anxious to be left alone with that still-breathing, bloody shell that had once been Jerome Kirby, but I could see she was exhausted, this poor little old lady, 
by the agony she must have lived through this day. But just then a shivering sigh came from the couch. In a moment she was beside it, a soft-footed, light little thing, a healing creature whose touch could have been no more soothing, whose sweet old face could have shown no greater compassion had it been her own son over whom she leaned. When he was still again, she came back to me. "'See, child,' she said, stroking my hand apologetically. "'You must let me take care of him. "'It is not an atonement, but, but I must. "'All that knowledge you trained nurses have I lack, "'but an old woman like me has here.' "'She put her worn old hands to her breast with a passionate emphasis. "'Something that teaches.' But neither of us, you with your fresh young body and wise little head, and me with my age, my sorrow, and my experience, neither of us can do anything. Only, I have worked too, hard, very hard in my youth. It will be well earning your day's pay, my dear, to stay with me and comfort me with the sight of your bright young face, yes? She drew me down on the lounge beside her, me, Rhoda Massey a journalistic dynamo charged to the brim with questions and waiting the very first opportunity to fire him off. But how to begin? She was simplicity itself, but you can't drag in such a topic as I had to deal with by the horns. Oh, I promised the maid to tell you, Mrs. Lowenthal, I said in an abstracted, gentle little tone of respect, that two reporters had called to see you. To see me? she exclaimed, startled. Oh, I, I couldn't. I'm very sorry not to be polite to the gentlemen, but, but... I know, I said sympathetically. They happened to come just as she opened the door for me. They tried to question me, but I wouldn't give them any satisfaction. And as I didn't come in nurse's rig on purpose, why, they... About, about, she gasped. Yes. I nodded over toward the couch. Her poor little hands flew up to her face. Do they know, she whispered, that Leo... Lothal! I knew it, I knew it. But I caught myself and only answered in as careless a voice as I could. Oh, yes, one of them said he'd, he'd talked over the phone with young Mrs. Lowenthal. Evelyn! Her hands fell onto her lap, uncovering a face that had gone gray. "'We haven't suffered enough through her yet,' she mused, nodding her head in miserable abstraction. I had a qualm, but I buried it. The interview I was faking as I went along would be an accomplished fact, of course, within a day or a week. I was merely anticipating it. "'I suppose it is natural, though, that she should blame Mr. Lowenthal,' I said thoughtfully but not in a questioning voice, not Rhoda. My tone was merely a continuation of her own, and I got up as I spoke and walked away from her toward the couch, as though preoccupied by professional solicitude. In a second she had followed me. To blame my son. The reporters told you that. She blames my son. She repeated in a horrified whisper. Why, she knows poor Leo did it. She was there when— Oh, not for the actual fact. I interrupted quickly. I was in for it now and had to go on. But for driving her to, to destruction. 
She looked at me dazed, too dazed to speak, but her whole quivering body was an eager question. By his stinginess, she said, his cruelty to her, the difference in religion which, which he would never forget, his devotion to you and his family by his first wife, and, and affairs with, well, actresses, you know. Phew! It was a large order, and for a man like Lowenthal, but I had to fill it. The only way to get some women to talk is to outrage the things they value most, to, to imagine the bill of wrongs the other party might have filed, then to consider it filed. After that, retail it to the lady in the case and blandly wait for her to retaliate. She'll do it all right. She wouldn't be human if she didn't. And women who come up for newspaper attention are usually very human. I thought poor old Grandma Lowenthal would faint for a minute, but she didn't, plucky little soul. I wish, I wish, she said slowly when she could speak, that I had seen them, after all, those reporters. God in heaven that she should say such things about my son. Yes, yes, I should have seen them, the reporters. It would have been terribly painful, but it was my duty. She sighed, wringing her hands. But what could you have said to them? I asked, in open-eyed innocence. I knew it, I knew it. The effect of my apparent belief in young Mrs. Lowenthal's griefs was the one touch needed to open her lips. Said. She held herself very straight in that minute, and her white head was haughtily erect. I should have said nothing. His old mother cannot say any more for David Lowenthal than all his life has said. But I should have shown the gentleman Evelyn's checkbooks. She threw them at my feet this afternoon just before that man came in the carriage. I should have sent for Evelyn's maid, her confidant, the flighty little Frenchwoman who is devoted to her. I should have Nanot tell them how my son would have carried her upon his hands, how he forgave what everlasting patience he had, and how at last, at last, he actually gave his consent to this, this separation, hoping that the passion she truly had for this strange man might redeem her from that terrible morphine, and only imploring her, by all his love for her and pity for herself, by his heart she had broken, by her faith in the stranger, to wait, to wait only till a separation could make her legally that man's wife. Oh, I gasped, I could not help it. But she would not, she could not wait. She was maddened by the scene, by his discovering. Something fearful was hurrying her on to complete her misfortune and ours. And when Leo, crazed by his audacity in coming for her here, rushed upon him then at the last, frenzied poor boy by his father's dishonor in our wrecked miserable home, he, this man, drew a pistol. They struggled, it went off, accidentally. There he lies. She is locked in her room, and since the doctor has said he must die unconscious to the last, she will open to no one. The lawyer says he must give himself up to the police. Leo, my only grandchild. The pistol. What does an old woman understand of such things? He says is not this man's pistol. He is known never to have carried one, they tell me. It is David's own pistol, they say. But how did this man get it? No one saw the struggle between them, no one but Evelyn, and she, she... What more will that woman do to torture us? What more can she do? She broke into sobs. 
Shh, shh, I cautioned, pointing to the couch. Kirby's body was rigid, but his hands were fluttering like light, bodiless things trying to detach themselves from the inert thing he must become. It was the tonic she needed. Her unselfish soul forgot its own misery and turned mercifully toward the dying man. O oh, Eternal, our God, she prayed passionately, bending over him. Pardon all our sins and forgive all our iniquities and grant us remission for all our transgressions. Forgive this one. Forgive. Ted Thompson caught me in the hall as I came flying into the office. He had on evening clothes and an expression of wrathful hauteur and the unusualness of both these things, together with the fact that they were mighty becoming, got to me in spite of my mad rush to get to my desk. Oh, oh, I exclaimed, really half bewildered with trying to grope back of my story, my great big bully story that I'd cut out of life itself, to the personal memory Ted and his new dress suit evoked. Oh, I remember, Ted, the opera, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was to be Carmen tonight, and, and we were going. His eyes went black as he stood silently looking at me. Phew! He was in a towering rage. Ted, the gay, the good-natured, whose sense of humor is too strong to permit him or anybody else's taking himself seriously. I looked from the nice, long, clean, straight figure he made and the new rig he got just for this occasion to my forgetful little self, disheveled, dripping, with my rain-washed but triumphant face and my soaking boots. It all came back to me, the details of the spree we'd planned for Ted's night off, the first since, since a certain day in Sacramento last week. A carriage was to call for me in that same pink chiffon gown. There were flowers Ted had sent, La France's, to match. The box at the opera to hold our glory, the reserved supper-table afterward in the palm garden where, where, oh, Ted, oh, <laughs> it was too funny. I giggled outright. That settled his dignity. Damn it, he cried. What do you think a man's made of? It is a shame, Ted, I gurgled, trying to stop laughing. I was awfully tired and, and overwrought. Such an elaborate party we'd planned, too, and that for the party. He brought his fist down upon the stair railing with a force that made it vibrate like a tuning fork. You, you're more like a ghoul than a human being, Rhoda. There's something repulsive about your preoccupation in this sort of thing. You might have forgot all about our party, he sneered, and it could hurt only my vanity. But to let pass clear out of your head, the... The thing that sang itself into every moment of my day, that changed the whole world for me, our first evening together after. Our, our being engaged, you mean, I interrupted. But, oh, if you knew what a story. He ripped out a swear then. Bowman himself couldn't have done justice to the occasion more completely. Say, Ted, I said slowly, I, I guess I haven't time to, to be engaged. I, I may marry somebody some day, but really I, what's that? I cried suddenly. A buzzing shiver shook the building, the presses, the paper going to press without my story. Oh, stop them, stop them. I sobbed and turning my back on him, I dashed into McCabe's office. 
He gave me two shorthand men, McCabe did, to dictate to alternately, so that one of them could be reading off notes to the linotype man, and we worked over the stuff, we five, for an hour and a half. The paper was late, but oh, what a stunner it was when we did get it out. There were two pages of it. The story of the elopement and the murder played up big on the right half of the first page, and Rhoda Massey finds the missing revolver, a flaring head for the other half. Of course, we'd built this part of it on the assumption that the police hadn't found the gun. Still, they were so much obliged to us up at the city hall when McCabe's phone reached them, telling them to lift the corner of the rug close to the bookcase that Chief Wiss would have let us claim the whole works if we'd wanted to. But we were modest, we were. We had everything in sight. End of chapter 7